When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. Okay, as listeners to our podcast know, at least this summer, I'm in Lyon, France. I'm here because my wife, Gail Levy, is leading a student abroad program here for students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and actually students from universities all over the country. And you basically come along for the ride. You are a lucky man. I am a lucky man. Um, But the fact that Gail routinely runs this student abroad program, which incidentally focuses on the resistance to the Nazis during World War II, which was très très fort here in Lyon, which means that we have spent we spent like six or seven summers here over the over the course of our ch- children's lives over the past sixteen years. I'm crying a single tear for you, Whitney. Like, this does not make you less lucky. <laughs> no, no. I look. I love this city. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity that public education in Missouri. Uh, has afforded us and afforded many other students who've come here with Gail and her and her colleagues who teach them here about the resistance to the Germans during World War II. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing bad about this, you know. Um, but it, it means I spent a lot of time here. I was here when I first went to Iraq. I, I left from Lyon. Um, I watched our sons grow up here and, and, you know, playing around in the Parc de la Tête d'Or and all, along the Rhone and along the Seine and and on the Rue de la République and all these great places in Lyon. Um so I just what can't you're imagine saying a is, place. So what you're saying is it's better than Kansas City. That's what you're oh. saying. That's what you're saying. Everyone heard that. Everyone heard that. It's on the podcast record. It's going out to thousands of listeners. Here's what I'm going to say about Kansas City and Lyon. They're roughly the same size. Uh, but if you measure a city's worth by rivers, and I do, Kansas City does have the confluence of the Missouri and Kansas rivers. But Lyon is built on the confluence of the Rhone and the Seine, so that's that's a toughie. That's tough to beat. Um, and if you give points for wine quality, then you're really, you know, it's the Rhone Valley, not the Missouri River Valley. Uh, what are your connections to uh, to France, Sugi, if any? And um, I should say, uh, points for wine quality, that, that's the only kind of points I plan to give out for anything this summer. <laughs> Um, my connections to France. I am related to scads, scads of French people. Um, I just you keep huge... mentioning these imaginary French people the, you're no related to. That, uh, they're like they're like their French childhood co- friends. My, my French, French cousins. Francois. My French cousins. That I my French cousins. My French cousins and my French uncle and um, I just there are a lot of them and um, I. I think that the part of Paris that is particularly of interest to me because it is basically little Jaffna is actually uh, outside of Gare du Nord. And um, I love like the the kind of fusion of French and Tamil food is amazing. And 
um, yeah, I just have had a really good time every time I visited and specifically because of the hospitality of my, of my family there, which live, they live not only in Paris, but out in, in other parts of the country as well. So I've had the opportunity to travel a little, it's not six or seven summers studying the resistance, but you know, we do, we, we do what we can. Um, but you, you're the expert here. So you, you lay the groundwork for this episode. Tell our listeners why we're talking France. Yes, we're going to do an episode about politics in France and what's going on in France politically, which is very interesting. Um, and, you know, France has been an important country for the United States, uh, as you'll hear us discuss during this pod- podcast, you know, since the time of the Marquis de Lafayette and even before then, you know. Um, and with Britain's exit from the EU and the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, the politics in France are even more important and relevant than ever. Um, so while I'm here, I thought we should at least take a moment to talk about what is happening in this country and how it relates to us and how it relates to other to world events. To do that, we're going to talk to Diane Louis and Benjamin Guerif. Diane Louis was born in Newfoundland and grew up in Connecticut. She earned degrees from Oberlin College and the University of Iowa Writers Workshop for both fiction and poetry. Her work has appeared in Epoch, Arts and Letters, Field, Tri-Quarterly, Cloudbank, and elsewhere. Her book of prose poems, Fractal Shores, is a winner of the National Poetry Series and the 2021 John Pollard Foundation International Poetry Prize. She lives in Paris with her partner, a research scientist. And Benjamin Guerif is an editor at Les Editions Gallmeister, a publishing house founded by Oliver Gallmeister that specializes in French translations of American writers. Benjamin oversees the Totem Collection, or imprint, at Gallmeister, which specializes in translations of American nature writing. He is also the author of the novel Pietro Carini and four novels in the collection Rat Noir, which he co-wrote with his brother. His father, François Guérif, was the French editor for my first novel, Le Chasseur Solitaire, and they both helped publish The Good Lieutenant at Gallmeister, so I owe a lot to the Guérif family. Père et fils... Uh, welcome, Benjamin. Uh, thanks, Whitney. Um, hello. Uh, hello to everybody. I'm happy to be there with you. <laughs> welcome, both of you, to the show. And, and just to set things up for our American listeners, and I have to apologize to all of our French-speaking listeners for my own pronunciation, which I'm going to do my best on. Um, but Whitney is the champion of this, not me. Um, back in April of this year, French President Emmanuel Macron won re-election with 58.5% of the vote, defeating far-right candidate Marine Le Pen in a runoff election. And this was seen as a big victory from Macron. But just a few weeks ago, France held a parliamentary election, and those results were much more mixed. And Macron's candidates from the Ensemble Party won 245 seats, which is short of the 289 seats needed for a majority. And two other parties made important gains in that election. One was a left-wing coalition, Nouvelle Union Populaire Ecologique et Sociale, um, organized by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, which won 131 seats. And the other was Marine Le Pen's far-right National Rally Party, which won a record 89 seats. Oh, my God. So we have three dominant figures right now uh, in France, in politics, as far as I understand it, and our guests may correct me if they disagree, on the left, Mélenchon, with the, and the center, Macron, and on the light, right, Le Pen. Could we just talk a little bit about who each of these candidates are for our American audience and what they want to do politically? What are their platforms and goals? Uh, Benjamin, maybe you could give us an overview on Macron. Alors, first, I will remind something that you probably know. 
uh, is uh, some important words uh, in the political fields uh, seem to be the same in English, American English and French, but it's not true. They don't have the same meaning. For example, Macron is a liberal. He is in France, but it means that he <laughs> believes in a, you know, a lighter state. Uh, he wants an entrepreneurial economy uh, as free as possible, uh, low taxes, um, free international trade, uh, and so on. A kind of, you know, Reaganomics. Uh, but less the brutal. fact the unfortunate thing is Benjamin is that that's what the liberals in America want too <laughs> <laughs> they've stopped being but, liberal <laughs> but they don't pretend to be Reagan's hairs uh, yeah, that's true in fact just a kind of Reaganomics but with more social protection mm -hmm. you know a mix they are centrist in fact uh, they are not a style to uh, you know, multiculturalism or minorities, right? The French liberal. But it's not so, so important for them, too. I mean, they are not like American progressists on the social field. You know, it, the, the, the word don't have the, exactly the same meaning. Uh, the French and European political scene is not, or not yet, perhaps, uh, divided between liberal liberal and conservative uh, like between democrats and, um, and republicans um, macron presents itself as a centrist um, which is true absolutely true and a moderate which is yeah. perhaps not so true <laughs> uh, he saw once uh, that against l'extrême droite far right far right l'extrême gauche, far left, or leftist, or whatever, he was d'extrême centre, the far center. So it means, it's an old proverb, you know, of the French tradition, je ne suis pas, répu euh, je suis républicain modéré, mais pas modérément républicain. It means, <laughs> I, 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 I am a moderate républicain against, you know, the king's party, but I am not moder moderating. I'm not moder. How do Moderément républicain. Yeah, I'm not a. Mo I'm not moderately a Republican. Basically. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think Macron is like that. He is in the center. That's true. He's mm -hmm. liberal for European ones. Um, but um, he is not necessarily moderate. <laughs> not necessarily. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay. Um, Benjamin, I so appreciate that assessment of terms because I think, yeah, we are, we're tossing around language that we normally use on this podcast, but really in a different direction. So I have to ask about Mélenchon. My French friends are, um, 
my French friends are generally left-leaning and would clearly vote Democrat in the U.S. They also think that the Democrats in the U.S. are appallingly center. And they have very mixed opinions of Mélenchon. And some say he's good because he's a genuine socialist and cares about working class people in kind of the Bernie Sanders style. And, and other folks say that Mélenchon is a populist, that he has a too favorable opinion of, for example, Putin, and that he's anti-immigrant and anti-EU, um, which they don't like. And so, Diane, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Mélenchon's role as a leader of the French left. Sure. Um, the In that question, I think the operative word may be a leader rather than the leader. And that all, although Mélenchon is attempting to be the, to consolidate his position as the leader. Um, like any agile politician, Mélenchon's stated positions have evolved to reflect the concerns and maintain support of multiple multiple constituencies over time. And um, in any case, at this point, he's effectively the strongest voice in the fragmented left. Um, you, any one of you will correct me <laughs> at, at any point. <laughs> um, he calls himself a political activist, and in that role, he appears to have five objectives. To be the spokesperson for the, a coalition of different, sometimes competing parties, the socialists, greens, or environmentalists, communists. He's returning the left to the playing field, making the party a major political, for, a major political player again. He's articulating a vision or a plan with, with policies and strategies to keep these concerns in the current public discourse. He's working as a counterbalance um, to Macron's tendency to move to the right. Um, and he's creating an electoral power that can win elections. That's his goal. Um, the coalition, NUPES, is the youngest political force on the left but with Mélenchon's leadership, it's also at this point the largest and the most organized. In the age group uh, 25 to 35, Mélenchon enjoys huge support, and I, um, which I especially appreciated when talking with a young friend who is 29 years old, who respects Mélenchon's efforts and policies, for example, prioritizing public service, incentivizing climate-friendly development in public and private sectors, but this is not blanket support. Um, for example, he says he's on the fence about Mélenchon's position in Europe. I mean, position on Europe, not in Europe, position on Europe. And then Doesn't he want to leave the EU? Isn't that his, one of his things? Doesn't uh, Mélenchon want to leave the I EU? I think that's shifted. I mean, my oh, sense okay. is all of that is yes and, and no. Okay. I mean, he's a political beast, right? Okay. He's gonna, yeah, he's, that's true. Yeah. yeah. In contrast, I spoke with friends who are much older of my generation and one who noted how Mélenchon has moved from being a moderate under President Mitterrand to his present, present what this friend called radicalization and another friend who compared Mélenchon to Mussolini and Castro. So you can see there, <laughs> there, are, there are multiple views of, of this man and, and I think fairly. So of course this leaves... Um... Marine Le Pen. And the Le Pen family has been trying to push French politics to the right for a long time. Can we talk a little bit about, um, Benjamin, maybe you can take this question, what, what Marine Le Pen wants and what that recent success in the parliamentary elections means for France? It's difficult to know what Marie Le Pen, Marine Le Pen wants exactly. It's very difficult to know. For decades, the National Rally, Front National, has been 
nationalist, very liberal on economic uh, field, economic topics, Reaganian, mm -hmm. Thatcherians, uh, and very conservative on the social questions. So no gay marriage, no social security for immigrants, no multiculturalism, more police forces, this kind of program. So, um, but that was the old Front National, who was created and ruled uh, by, for 30 years uh, by Marine's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who is now more than 80 years old and quite silent. Marine Le Pen changed the official political lines of the party. She pretends now to protect workers, blue collars, against international finance, against free trade, against excesses of capitalism. Nowadays, she depends she defends uh, important social measures, but she's still nationalist. Uh, she wants, mm -hmm. you know, closed borders, well guarded. Uh, she doesn't like Islam. Uh, she considers France was better 50, 50 years ago, which is absolutely not true. She thinks immigration from Africa is the main problem of France. Uh, but does she really want to uh, rule the country? Uh, she succeeded in de-diabolizing, you mean uh, normalize the party. Uh, no more uh, moderate uh, in its nationalism. But many people think that a party born in the far right, close to the fascist tradition, uh, will always stay somewhere mm -hmm a bit fascist, and other people think, but when Front National uh, has been created, it was 1%. It was only 30 years after uh, the occupation, and it was 1% of the, the votes. And yeah. now we are 80 years after the war, and Marine Le Pen had 44% of the votes in the last presidential election, which is the most important in France. So it's not fascist anymore. It's over. It's old story. And both of them, these people can, both of the opinion are understandable. If you, if you have been, if you were born close to the fascist tradition, you know, fascist one day, fascist forever. And other people say, no, it's not the same context, it's not the same thing, it's different. No, you know, she's a nationalist and socialist, national and socialist. I mean, there are some people that said that, that Trump, when he started off, was uh, showing socialist tendencies, that he was willing to do things that Republicans didn't previously do in terms of helping out unions and stuff like that. Trump changed a very important topic in the Republican Party. The party was Thatcherian. He was for the free trade, for the success, individual That's success, true. for mm -hmm. the low taxes, for all of that. And after Trump, it was like, you know, I'm your champion, you blue collars, you poors, you Amer um, America um, with difficulties or um, things like that. And I think Everywhere in the in the Western world, in the in the right side, a bit radical right, 
you have this this um, meeting between social preoccupations and nationalism. I, I think so. I'm, perhaps I'm wrong, yeah? But. Well, speaking of fascism and the war, um, I want to talk a little bit about how the war in Ukraine, I just had dinner this evening with two Ukrainian refugees who are living here in France who looked, that was heartbreaking. I mean, there's this 14-year-old girl and her mom their dad, who is a PhD student, they're from Odessa. He is like fighting in the war right now. He's like a 40-year-old man, you know. Uh, and I've been to war, and I know what it's like. And it's, you know, I can't imagine how frightened they must be. So in Lyon, one of the interesting things is where I am right now, there are markers all over the city. This is a spot that was very strong for the resistance against the Germans during the Second World War. And there are little markers for saying so-and-so was killed here by the Germans at, or so-and-so was shot here by the Germans resisting uh, the occupation. And there's a civic commitment to remembering how terrible things were under the occupation, which is uh, something that the U.S. post-revolution has never experienced. What is it like for you as French citizens to watch the citizens of Ukraine undergo this? I mean, I'm sorry, you as a French citizen, Benjamin, and you, Diane, as an American in, in, in France, to watch Ukraine the citizens of Ukraine undergo a similar occupation. It is so similar to what happened to the French during the, the Second World War. And how do the French and these varying French politicians view their role in the war there? How do people think Macron has handled it? Diane, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, well, first, clearly there's support. Um, I mean, uh, when the French object to something, they make it known in the streets. And there have been no anti-war protests. I mean, just... Um, support for Ukraine, opposition to Russian aggression was not a major campaign issue. Um, polls show that overall the French appear to, to support Macron's handling of the crisis and to appreciate, certainly to appreciate Europe as a united force, the importance of that. Um, about Macron and, and his role, it's important to remember that Macron was trying to broker peace as the rotating president of the European Union, as well as as the president of France. And was he bound to fail? Um, Macron, who's had a dialogue with Putin for many years, has been critical of the French, of the foreign affairs ministry, saying that they were too wary when dealing with Putin. And now we see who read Putin more astutely, right? Um, the foreign affairs ministry obviously understood this guy's character all along. And to Macron's credit, he's trying to keep communication with Russia open, I suppose, um, while fully supporting Ukraine. And this support but is was that to his credit? I just want to ask this question, maybe of you I, and Benjamin. Just yeah. So I listen to Ukrainian. I listen to Ukrainian podcasts of, of you know by Ukrainian journalists who are in Ukraine. They are furious at Macron for talking. Yes, to they him. are. They are. By the way, we're going to use the American pronunciation of Putin. Not, we're not going to say Poutine, which Poutine. is what the French say. And Putin yeah. is a bad word in French. Too bad. We're talking to an American audience. This is no one would understand if we said Poutine. Right. But right. so um, the Ukrainians are furious at Macron for, for constantly talking to Putin. Right. I, Do, the French don't I think, care or they think it's a good idea for him to be doing this? Well, I think, I think that one thing that's happened is that Macron himself has emphasized France's support when he went to Kiev with the leaders of 
Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands, where the four leaders confirmed their support of Ukraine's eventual integration into the EU. So that's Macron. I think, I, I personally think that, well, first, I think he's been played, and I think he's naive, and I think he's arrogant, all those things. But I think it's wonderful what he's trying to do, because what else in this world, what else can you do? What else can you do? You have to try. If Putin won't listen, even if he's sick and dies soon, you have to try, of yeah. course. So it was not perhaps not absolutely brilliant, but he tried. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Russian uh, Russian medias, which are uh, very um, dire, uh, dominated by the Kremlin, uh, they say the, they, 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 they created a word in Russian it's a to Macron. It means to 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 talk small talks. You know, it's to talk uselessly. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. I don't speak Russian, but whatever. Well, you know. Okay. Is this a unified opinion? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to say one thing. Yeah. Uh, perhaps people don't know. Europe for centuries has been ruled by a pentarchy. Five, five countries. Someone, sometimes one change being replaced by another. But And if you look like Europe now, uh, England is out, European Union. Uh, Austria disappeared as a great, great power. Germany has no army. Stay Russia and France. It's not comfortable for us, you know. It's not at all comfortable. But you have... Just have to talk, you know, no choice. <laughs> I just wondered real quickly if you could, are the, are the other candidates, the other groups that we talked about at the beginning, Mélenchon, the far left or the far right with Le Pen, do they have differing opinions on how this should be handled? Are they making arguments or criticizing Macron or are they all united and say that Ukraine should be supported by France? So everybody will be trying to crush Macron, of course. Okay. After that, far right and far left has in common a kind of hate of liberalism in the French acceptation of the, of the world. It, you say Doesn't that Mélenchon kind of like Putin a little bit? Doesn't he? We talked about this Mélenchon, earlier. Mélenchon I mean... is not, he's not anti-immigration. Uh, I heard that. But uh, you, in fact, Mélenchon... Um, use very much uh, the African population and is a okay, Muslim, Islam. Yeah. Well, I got but, that wrong. That was my fault. No, I, I, I'm not sure it's very sincere, you know. Say, okay. you, you are oppressed. Uh, you are the poor people uh, in France. It's because France is awful. So vote for me. It's this kind of discourse, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the most important common point between Mélenchon and Le Pen is they hate the individual freedom. Except if for the leftist uh, uh, sexual questions, you know, sexual or things like that. And for the right, if it's to be a kind of um, anarchist who could say, uh, I don't care you, uh, go off. Disappear. I, I, I don't want to talk with you. This kind of discourse. They, they don't like what 
is the basis of democracy, which is the discussion and the compromise. They, they don't like the compromise. For both of them, to compromise, to, to find a compromise is, to, uh, is, is weakness. That's what I, I think, because of course I'm a centrist. So perhaps I'm wrong, you know, but it's what I feel. And I read some days ago in an American pay, renowned paper, the problem in the States is that we don't have any more centrist. I don't know if it's true. It was the opinion of the journalist, but I understand this argumentation. You know, I understand that. We should be able to build compromises with others. We should accept to not have all the truth just for us. We, we are not a church, you know. You can be a leftist, a centrist, or from the far right. It's difficult for me, the far right, but... We're going to stick with French politics because that's going to be an idea that's very hard to convince Americans of. Uh, I can tell you that. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about the ways in which different French political leaders are, I mean, of course, manipulating issues to their own ends. And of course, in the United States, we see um, Republicans kind of, and, and others, I mean, I think sort of piling on Biden, um, problems that are not of his making are being laid at his feet. We've talked a little bit about that on this show. And I'm curious, um, here in the U.S., one of those problems is, of course, the economy. And I'm curious about how the French economy is affecting voters. Whitney has been sending me photos of posters put up by, and wait, I'm Gilets sure I'm wrong, the, the Gilets Jaunes. That, that was what I was going to say, in fact. Um, <laughs> they are a grassroots movement that sprang up in 2017 and 2018 in opposition to Macron's tax policy, specifically a tax increase on diesel and petrol, which would be used to fund green energy. And so right now in the U.S., everyone here is very upset about fuel prices and generally inflation. And is that still an issue in France? How are people talking about the French? How are people talking about the French economy in relation to these voting decisions? I, I do respond, or it's mm -hmm. Diane? No, no, you do. <laughs> you, I do. Okay. Oh uh, yes, le 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 pouvoir d'achat. I don't know the word in American. Uh, purchasing. Purchasing uh, power. power. Purchasing spending, power. Spending. Okay. Uh, has been the most um, important question in the the elections. Uh, in fact, a part of the society is poor, and many people are afraid to become poor. Many more people mm -hmm. are afraid mm -hmm. to become poor. So uh, this question of will I, shall I uh, become poor, it's partly true because many people don't have opportunities, uh, especially in the France peripheric, you know, marginalized, uh, isolated communities. And it's partly a feeling, a perception, uh, because social inequalities are high or developing, and many people are afraid of future. Uh, but in fact, if we compare the last 50 years, France is much, much, much richer now than 50 years ago. And uh, there is, a, you know, l'INSEE, National Statistical Institute, which uh, calculates how many uh, work at the minimal wage you need to buy some bread, uh, mm -hmm. a car, 
something. And uh, you see that in uh, 50 years, then uh, even poor people, relatively poor people, became very much richer than before. But they don't feel that. Right. And so they, they are afraid of the future. And it's, of course, something very, uh, it's a fuel for uh, contestative blocks like NUPES or National Rally. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. The thing that is amazing to me was what Benjamin was saying, that France is actually very well off compared to what it was 50 years ago. When I look at small towns in France, we just talked about this on our last podcast with Tom Frank, who's an American writer about economics. Compared to small towns in America, small towns in France seem cleaner. They have actual economies. They have businesses that work. Small towns in America are completely destroyed. The downtowns are empty. The people are gone. The buildings are in ruins. There are trees growing through them, right? That is not what small towns in France look like. They look like they're well-maintained. It seems like there's a lot more money in rural areas than there, than there is in the, Amer in the United States. So I'm surprised that the French are so upset because I'm like, look at what happened to our, at our place. It's, it's a disaster. Right, but, but Whitney, I think that's not... I think that's not accurate. I think the oh. small towns in France are suffering, and you see them. The schools are not there. The boulangerie is not there. The, um, the only thing that's still there is the mairie. That's all that's left. The, they are, and I don't, I was looking up, trying to find what policies shifted about five, eight years ago, because something happened. I was in the south of France at that point for a month in a small town that had lost basically all its commerce. So there was a, a truck that came once a week with food, right? So okay. you could go places, you could drive 30, mi 30 kilometers to get food, but you couldn't, nothing in the little village existed. And, and they, were, they were explaining to me something about that the, the things were being centralized into larger community, into the larger, more urban areas, and therefore, da, 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 da. Um, but I don't know the actual policies that shifted. But in all the, I've done a lot of walking around Ile de France with a walking group. And all those villages that I'm walking through, the ones that have, okay, some have money and some ha are clearly prosperous. They're on a commuting line, for example, they're on the railway. But the others, or they're completely charming. For some reason, they have, you know, but what is kept, so when you do see villages that are in good shape, right, really protected and beautiful, what has happened? Many times what's happened is that people from the UK or Netherlands have moved in, right? People from out of the country have bought up property. And so it looks clean and gorgeous, but the commerce is not there. And the vitality of the, of a, of a, of a community, of a tiny community's life, is not there. Benjamin, could you? Oh, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Sugi. I'm sorry. Oh no, I just was going to say. I think that. I mean, I certainly, as an American who has only very briefly spent time in French small towns and villages, you know, have this kind of really idealized, perhaps anachronistic frozen in time sense of like, you know, everything, the bread there is still fresh. Whitney was like, I went to a cheesemonger. I was like, I don't know when the last time I went to a cheesemonger was. 
Now, uh, in Ile-de-France, it's a righteous place in France. It's one third of the national growth, uh, you know, PIB. So Ile-de-France is very rich, very rich. Compared it's to like US. it's like California or New York. It's very rich. So uh, small places can be healthy. You know, you have money. If you go to North Pas-de-Calais or Lorraine or other places like that, mm -hmm. or my my place in Normandy, which is not poor, but in some places it's not really wealthy. You know, uh, it's not the same at all. Not at all. Right. And you're right when you say there is nobody left, there is nothing. That's true. That's ex exactly that. But Ile-de-France is not representative at all. At all. It's it, it's. Like if you say New York was where the states, no, of course there is Tennessee too. <laughs> it's not possible to to generalize, and uh, I guess too uh, that friends come, uh, you know, rural communities. They come from very low. After the war, it was almost like the third world in some mm -hmm. rural France. So it is better now but it's not necessarily very, very good. I guess we can't spend the whole time talking about what towns in France are rich or not, but I'm just going to ask you, because I was in I was in the Drôme, I was in D, which is a pretty small town that looked like it was seemed like it was in great shape. It's, it's, it's Centreville. Some it's still of them, but you didn't visit, you didn't visit the, the, the projects uh, of the north of the, or, uh, of the east of France. Old blue collar projects, mm -hmm. uh, abandoned, poor, with okay. many, 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 many poor people from Algeria most of the time with drug problems, you know. Right. The banlieue of, of the, the, the industrial areas uh, and the projects of, of major towns, even like Lyon, are very, very different. That's a whole different deal. Yeah. So there is a clivage. Uh, uh, Diane was right to say it's a community line question. But like in the state, in fact, it, it's really different from a place to another. It can change really, really. I think many Americans think France is socialist and so everything is the same everywhere, more or less. But it's not true. In fact, it's like, you know, you have the suburbia, the prosperous. You have small towns with wine. Uh, you know, or, or alcohol. Yeah, Dee had a lot of wine caves. There's a, that's a wine industry. Yeah, and, and they have money, of course, and everything is okay. And you have projects, mm -hmm. old cities abandoned, old blue collar neighborhoods uh, with, you know, two or three or four generations of unemployed people, which is impossible to uh, re, uh, uh, reintegrate in uh, the job market because it's too long, it's been too long. Mm -hmm. And so th those one, it's not the same France, huh? but it exists. Mm -hmm. And they, this one, they vote for National Rally or for Mélenchon. I'm just gonna mention Francois, Francois Bon, which is a French writer who I have worked with in the past, who writes about this stuff. Diane, you had something that you wanted to go on to a different topic, so I wanna, and I, and I stopped you. So now we're done with the economics. What did you wanna say? 
No, I, no, the small towns. Just oh, okay. T- talking about that. But one other thing I'm thinking as a population in a small, let's say you have a village of, of 800 people and the population ages because the young people, they're, nothing's keeping them there. They're going to go to urban areas. I mean, that's, that's happening over the world. That's, this is not unique to France. But, and, then, and then you lose, you lose so much, right? All right. So we're a podcast that talks about politics, but also literature. And both of you are deeply involved in the literature side of that equation. So we want to pivot there for a little bit. Diane, you live in Paris. I'm assuming you wrote most of your book of poetry, Fractal Shores, there. Is that right? Am I correct to assume that? You are correct to assume that. Okay. Many of them didn't I... begin in France, but they were written there. <laughs> I wonder if you would read to us a couple poems, and then we're going to talk about them. Sure. Thank you. I just want to say it's such a pleasure to see you and to meet you, Benjamin. And also, it's such an honor to be here, to be here with you on the podcast. Um, your invitation to, to speak with you has, has um, prompted me to see the poems in a new light. I had never, I'm, a very, I'm very aware that some of the poems have a political, I, I don't know, underbelly, but a political elbow, right? Something's going on in them. But I really had not seen it as sort of, um, I just noticed it in individual poems. And I, and I know that I was asking myself, can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? Can I say this when I was writing? So the, some of the, some of, it's a book of prose poems. Some have grown out of experiences in France, others in the high Sierras, and others grew out of images or questions. Um, overall, I've thought of them as located more in landscapes than in politics. And, uh, but inspired by anticipating speaking with you, if you think of politics as relationships among the polis in all the nuanced muddle of our human interactions and communities, then yes, there are, they are little conversations within and with our current political world. Um, certainly some more than others. The first poem I'm going to read is called Visiting Gertrude Stein in Père Lachaise, and it's about uh, Gertrude Stein, poet, writer, is buried in Père Lachaise. She lived in France for many, many years, and she's buried in Père Lachaise, and I made a pilgrimage to her grave, um, and it's about that. Uh, It began with that pilgrimage, but also with a nagging recognition that had I been alive a hundred years ago and able to attend her salon, I as a woman would have been relegated to the kitchen with Alice. And while the men, Matisse, Picasso, Hemingway, et cetera, et cetera, were at Gertrude Stein's knees. And I had this line, I would have been with Alice and the herbs instead of Gertrude parsing verbs which eventually I let go of because it didn't belong in that. But that was, that's part of the context of this prose poem. Um, there's an epigraph from her book, um, Wars I Have Seen. And there's also, and there's a phrase in the poem, Trees Weep. That's also from this book, The Wars, Wars I Have Seen. And the epigraph is, which is real, what you do now, or what you used to do? Visiting Gertrude Stein in Père Lachaise. 
Her stone is not the largest. Polished gray, edges square, her name engraved. One could stand on it, one could sit. Others have placed stones upon the stone. Gravity would do as well. Bones don't expatriate from earth. But a name, among so many names, every heart once beating on its own. Trees weep, seeds scatter to the gravel path, perfect seeds, imperfect seeds, the wars we have seen. The sky is so convincing, but wars, each replaced by the one which follows. You never think it's going to be like this. You never think the thinking ends. I am sitting on a wooden bench for the view, for the veil between. I have walked to her door. I have walked away. Atoms, all atoms, all quivering space. That's fantastic. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you. And this prose poem called Only Connect started with an image of contrails in the sky and the view outside uh, my window in Paris. The contrails at this, at this particular moment looked like an equal sign in the sky. And at the time I was a bit under the weather dealing with what is called frozen shoulder, which is a ridiculous challenge. You end up having to do everything with the opposite hand because the, the shoulder actually is frozen. Um, it's anyway, it has a real name and a, and <laughs> a real cause. Um, I started thinking about weather, uh, external atmosphere weather and internal emotional weather. And in the early versions of the prose poem, I described the pain I was in, but that wasn't the subject at all. The subject is more how one thing does and does not stand in for something else. Only connect. Above terracotta roof tiles, contrails crisscross the sky like math symbols, mooring relation, equal to, not equal to, seeds of ice spreading as thin white veils. One condensed against another, formed in the wake of thinking, equal to, not equal to. As waves, fronts, ridges, troughs, Earth's rotation moves our view around. A woman leans out her window to water blooming lavender. A green bird is perched behind the telephone, as wind, as direction and force. We make the bed we do not want to sleep in. How much thinking clouds our thinking, the body conversing for the mind. We want to sing. We want to lift both hands to the sky. Ah, for a firmament of song, equal to, not equal to. The telephone has no battery. The bird is painted wood. The woman is made known by pen and ink. But we ourselves are saying so. Imagine that. I love that. Thank you so much for reading. And you were talking a little bit about, you know, thinking about your work as political or, or not political. And of course, you know, as a co-host of this podcast, I am required to of course, politics yeah. and everything. And, and, I, and I do. And, you know, I think in so many of your lines, I do hear that. And, you know, for example, how will we see in common if we don't take someone's part that line? And, and I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about after so many years of living in France, 
um, how you think about your work is affected by the political environment in France, where you live, where you've been living, or in the U.S. or elsewhere. I think that um, I'm in the world, right? And I'm and I'm not a sponge exactly, but I'm responding sometimes unwillingly to what's going on, and so it's it's with anything you know you you um it's i don't think i don't think i'm working overtly politically i because and if, if i were i would be writing essays and i'm not i'm 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 my loyalty is to a given prose poem is to a given text that has its own subject um is that subject you know but but I can't escape it either. So in the poem that you're in the prose poem you're referring to, the one that where um, the flying colors, um, I was ext- I was very aware of what I was doing there. Red and blue, the colors red and blue were, and I couldn't escape it. I didn't exactly want to go in that direction, but I could. That's what the poem was doing, and so it had you know it has it has a life of its own. And my question to myself was, is this is this decorative? Is this um, is this naive? Can I ask this question? Can I can I be so apparent <laughs> in asking that? And um, the poem about ISIS, for example, another one is which is visiting the the statue in Herbert Hoover's birthplace outside of Iowa City. And there's a statue of ISIS. And I was working on this one for years. And until ISIS, that word was taken over by the, you know, as a became a, polit- a word that was politicized and dangerous and no longer just the name of a goddess, right? But until that happened, I didn't have the poem. So sometimes I can't escape it. But your question, has France, you know, it, yes, of course it has. <laughs> just as just as the US has you know i'm 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 a person of my time and place and place benjamin you're an editor at uh lazy edition gallmeister as we said before you have your own imprint totem which you began in 2010 and which specializes in american nature writing gallmeister in general specializes in american literature in translation you know translated into french which shows the interest that the French take in American writing and culture, which is very real and I appreciate. Um, How has that interest been affected by recent political developments in America, like Trump's election, for instance, or the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which I saw signs on the street out here in Lyon about that, um, saying, honte aux aux États-Unis, right? Um, Or do politics not matter when it comes to literary taste? That doesn't affect whether people want to read about Thoreau or not. Ah, so that's true. We began with uh, natural writing, uh, and we still publish this kind of literature. But now we are interested in the war American literature. Uh, of course, uh, of course, we're interested with uh, we're interested in uh, American politics. Of course, because it's a major country of the West. Uh, because we are all the light, uh, light countries, because we are a bit jealous, because this kind of thing. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's it's obvious. Um, I guess 90 or 95 percent of our authors don't support Republicans 
And most of French people liked Obama much more than Trump. I, I don't take a big risk in saying that. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think literature should have a political line. I mean, uh, I won't choose a text because the author uh, has um, a political argumentation that I, I like, you see. Uh, so, in France, I guess uh, everybody is interested in what happens in America because uh, we think it's perhaps what could happen in 10 years here. Uh, because we adore to say, haha, the Americans are, are wrong. And we adore <laughs> to say, haha, the Americans are right. And you know, it's it's an it's like an old couple, an old relationship. But the states are more powerful than France, so uh, you know we listen <laughs> more than we say. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> in fact, it's been it's been uh, two centuries, two centuries that American and French culture are tied, are bound. It's, it's, it was true uh, in the time of James Fenimore Cooper, and it's true now. It was true in the 20th century with the musicians, you know, mm -hmm. yep. African-American jazzmen or uh, writers. It was true. And uh, Fr uh, French uh, writers have been, and cineasts, and have been fascinated, and musicians. I've been fascinated yeah. by the, the folk culture, the American culture, and especially the folk culture. We love, we 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 like, you know, Hollywood. We like pulp. We like uh, westerns. Uh, it's not our story. We didn't conquer the West, <laughs> and so it it's it's we are we are bound to the state, whatever we think about the state. That's that's a fact of life. That's all. So, of course, European, French, and European prefer Democrats and Obama, and the legend. You know, in France, it was Jesus Christ. It it was an honest president, but perhaps not the Messiah. <laughs> perhaps not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, Reagan is not popular, and Obama is. That's a fact. So mm -hmm. we can think whatever we like about that. It's, it's a fact. But anyway, uh, French people and European people, I think, uh, are fascinated by the American culture because it's new, it's young, it's dynamic, it's strong, it's interesting. It's the new frontier of what we don't know, the uh, Artificial intelligence, perhaps after <laughs> after the space, after the moon, God, the moon, you know, it's it's a fascination. Most of the French people I know who say I don't like the states, they go to see to Disney, to Marvel, to American literature, to pulp fiction, to, to... they love that. <laughs> I have a the man who lives below me in this apartment. Um comes up this is the second time we've lived in this apartment and he's done it both times we've lived here my son plays baseball in the living room and he gets very angry and comes up and yells at us for making too much noise 
but then all day long he plays jazz music and the and and american rock and roll on his on his he has a giant record collection that he showed us that's all american music i just want you to know benjamin i'm sorry americans love f- french culture as well and are equally fascinated by it absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah yeah don't mute <laughs> i was going to say yeah but this is all mutual i think europe most of european western european Consider America, uh, which they don't necessarily know very well, in fact. And they consider America like a brand new Europe, not so old, not so, uh, you know, uh, weak, not so. It's, it's like us, but in better. But of course, it's a cliche. Of course, it's a cliche. Huh? I, I, I agree with that. But I think. It's uh, there is some psychono uh, psychoanalytical thing like that, you know. America, it's like us, but in better. <laughs> I and also so much worse. <laughs> but um, yes, our our mutual admiration and fascination. I think that you know one thing you can see so frequently, and I I remember in college taking a class that was basically sort of about Americans abroad and like seeing all of these like these landscapes and stuff these Europe, like the, the, the trope of the American abroad, you know, taking a grand tour um, and kind of seeing all of that space represented in American literature. And, and Diane, your poems mentioned France and French landmarks. You've, you've already mentioned um, Père Lachaise um, and there are other landmarks in your work as well, quite frequently. And I wonder if we could end this episode um, and this, this conversation about um, our mutual <laughs> interests um, <laughs> with a reading from a poem set on the Seine. Sure. I, I like thinking of it in that context. Thank you for that. Um, it's, a, it's a prose poem called On Balance, Denis Jocelyn Crossing the Seine. So on the same day that we made this pilgrimage to uh, Père Lachaise for Gertrude Stein to see Gertrude Stein's grave, it was the Paris Marathon. And after dodging hundreds of, ru- of runners crossing back over the river, we walked back across the Pont Charles de Gaulle and where we discovered a man who was... Uh, preparing to cross the Seine on a high wire and Denis Jocelyn. So it turns out there was a lot of preparation before he was allowed. He was the first person who was allowed to do this. And it was, it was quite glorious to watch. On balance, Denis Jocelyn crossing the Seine. If we are what we leave behind, then what is the sky with its shifting horizons, the river bisecting land, the ligature of wind-blown trees. Even in a raspberry silk blouson, a man is but the wind's apostrophe, so far as I can see from the deck of a white peniche. I am looking up with aperitif and wonder, such a spectacle of trust each step he takes, above the river, below the sky, such concatenation each one by one, Through my binoculars, he smiles, his gray hair curls. The silk blouson is not tucked in. One must be authorized to cross above the Seine, the high steel wire made familiar, the weighted black pole. He is not walking on air, nor am I, and yet it is my birthday. I am crossing from you must be kidding to what if, what if. He kneels, I hold my breath, 
He stretches out. He wraps a scarf across his eyes, if shifting now and then. Thank you very much. And thanks to both of you. We encourage our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of Diane Louise Fractal Shores. And if you are interested in great French translations of American writing, please visit Benjamin's Totem and Gallmeister in general. Thank you. Thank you both. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>